0: ta <laughs> ta
1: Wendy Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, and we are so glad you are today. Wendy S. Walters is here in the studio with me, and um, and you know to start us off here, uh, we're going to start with Wendy's bio. Uh, we have the book on the table with us. Is Multiply Divide on the American Real and Surreal, out with Saraband Books, and here's Wendy's bio. Wendy S. Walters is associate professor in the writing program of the School of the Arts at Columbia University, where she directs the nonfiction concentration. She's the author of two books of poems and a book of prose, Multiply Divide, on the American Real and Surreal. With Elise Nelson, she co-edited the volume, Fictions of Emancipation, Reconsidering, Why Born Enslaved? She is completing a book about white paint forthcoming in 2024. Wendy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, T. It's um, on the walk over here, everybody. um, uh, Wendy and I figured out that um, we have met before in 2011 at NELP, at the New England Literature Program, um, of great fame
2: out in the woods
1: (laughs) out in the woods yes um the experimental community of yeah and and i think at that point we were reading your essay had been published in harper's Mm. lonely in america yes and you came to visit nelp and to talk with everyone about it um and I was so excited to see that it was also part of this collection in Saraband.
2: Yes, yes. Apply
1: and Divide.
2: It's had its own life.
1: It's, yes. <laughs> um, maybe maybe we could start with, um, there's so many, many places to start. May, let's start with this. More of your bio. You came to Michigan for
2: your undergrad. I did. <laughs> I did. I was a local uh kid. So I grew up, I was born in Flint and grew up uh, in Troy. My father worked in uh, for General Motors and my mother taught at Oakland University. So Woo-hoo. it was a really big jump for me to come all the way down to Ann Arbor uh, as a college student. And I had just an incredible time here. Um, kind of my world opened up when I came to Ann Arbor. So um very soft feelings for the place.
1: <laughs> and when we were walking here, you said, "Oh, the cottage inn is still there." And um and we're wondering about school kid kids records um yeah. which probably Frank can answer um if it's still there. But he's like shyly telling us to go forth into the conversation. <laughs> now <laughs> <laughs> um, but and your time here also, you've been to the radio station before when you were in undergrad. Yeah.
2: I spent a lot of my time with uh musicians and when I was here as a student and we were I was always just going somewhere where there was music being played and uh you know, school kids was a big record store at the time. Uh, I guess they were selling CDs mostly, but we were always interested in what was coming out, what was new mm. uh that was you know, being offered. And that was kind of a time of global music. So we were trying to open our ears and listen as widely as we could. And then there were all these wonderful programs happening in in the School of Music. So I would just go to concerts, you know, two, three nights a week just because the music was great. Did you, were you writing poems then, Wendy? What what were you like as a,
1: as a writer in college?
2: (laughs) I, uh, I was uh, not so different. I think I was a little terse and a little awkward and um, very, you know, very moved by other people's artistic expression. So, um, you know, watching people play music was very, very uh, kind of moving for me. And um, I was writing poetry, didn't really know to what ends it would be used. Um, And at that time, I was also still very interested in performance art. <laughs> which i think everybody was uh at, in that time so we were doing a lot of music and music and spoken word performance and um none of it very good i think but it was no really judgement that's <laughs>
1: <laughs> who's t- did you did you record any of it is there can you like bring it up on the phone now? <laughs> I, I don't think so no it, it was a sample
2: <laughs> incredibly all before uh the internet uh, uh, well not before the internet but before the web. And um, I worked with a composer here, Derek Bermel, who is still a good friend of mine. And um, we, you know, eventually we formed a performance group that was in Amsterdam in the United States and did a bunch of shows. But then, you know, it it was all lost to posterity because this was all before digital uh, production and digital collection, probably somewhere on, on film or tape somewhere <laughs> yeah it must be some
1: yeah some tape somewhere It um is that you stayed with per, the performative aspect of art and that's still it feels like a very close part of your your making and process even now is
2: yeah. is that right Or I think that's right and I think even as a student of literature I was really inspired by dramatic work so um you know your kind of basic Chekhov, Ibsen, and mm-hmm. Adrian Kennedy; those were my those are were my three, and those are my three writers who just really inspired me to think about how story moves and how things pivot, and how the small graces that we experience might be brought to uh, a visible, brought to an audience in a visible way,
1: and that you're speaking of it in a way that's visible, the audience that might be present in the space with you.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And do you also, how is that also then a layer, it seems, in your writing, too, where the audience is far from you, but maybe holding your book, Multiply, Divide, or your book of
2: poems, Troy, or... I mean, I I was meeting with students earlier today, and one of the things that I was trying to impress upon them which maybe isn't um, something that we talk about a lot of the times when we're teaching writing, is how important the reader is. And m- mostly the readers that we are seeking don't know us. Um, sometimes they do. But um, there's the uninitiated reader, I think, um, who is who, you know, who is available to read a story if they're given the tools to read it. So um, the dramatic presentation of a story, I think, is one of the ways that you can kind of make people feel like they're welcome in a story, and um, it's kind of a... We have cultivating hospitality, I think, in the story, or in you know in an essay or in a poem or whatever it is that you're writing.
1: Well, and I like that you're... You, thank you for saying that, too, Wendy, because when you were saying story, I was going to ask a follow-up about genre, or if story is, like, the more universal term of the word story, and especially how... Um, I don't know, it seems like in it's something that we we talk about more and more. Um, as I think as makers, as writers, but even in the marketplace, sadly now with advertising, et cetera, or, or not, I shouldn't show my bias in that way. <laughs> um, but it's like the story meaning that it could be um completely fictionalized or it could be a framework of an essay or a poem
2: or absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the, um, the you know genre is something that really suits institutions and and yes. you know businesses and genre doesn't always suit writers or artists. So I you know one of the things that I am always trying to do is figure out how to make make a work compelling, and that doesn't necessarily have to do with making it fit. Uh, into a space Um, and and, you know this is something i think i learned from being around musicians for a long time is there's the record bin and then there's what people make right so there there are two different things and at least when i'm at my best working i'm thinking about what i'm making um, and then i'll think about what bin it goes in later right i think i I
1: couldn't uh, I couldn't agree more with you Wendy <laughs> I feel like it's a good thing I could be like a bobblehead here or something um and this came up which I thought was so interesting when I was looking for your book Multiply Divide on the American real and surreal um and I was at uh Nicola's which is now sh- um Schuler's uh, by the Westgate Mall out there and um and I was looking for it on the shelf and was feeling uh, frustrated and then the person said it was in the store and then <laughs> kindly led me <laughs> to <laughs> the place. But I thought this is so connected to even what you're talking about as a maker versus like a consumer or a person able to find it. Yeah. And I was, cause I was so clear in my mind that these, this was a book of essays and then I was excited to see these and we'll talk, let's talk about this later too, but how you're already, um, um, it's it's not just literary essays everyone it's also fictional pieces and hybridity of form that is contained um in multiply divide but the the book had it categorized. Under social science and sociology, <laughs> I
2: love that. That's the first time. That's the first time I've heard that. So. Isn't
1: that interesting that it was? Because it was so. I was just like, I didn't have a chance here to find it for some reason. But Saraband has it labeled essay literature.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but not that I want to embrace labels. That doesn't <laughs> seem to be. I I'll don't take want... them all. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly, um, but. Yeah, it's exciting to think that your work has always been um kind of questioning the boundaries of genre. Um even I think I read somewhere where you had like a 25 or 30 page poem and people who you sent it to said things like
2: we prefer the two pages yeah. <laughs> or yeah, they said um you know if you're if we're going to publish something for that's two pages it better be really good. And you know of course, that was super intimidating. But then the question is, you know, where does that other kind of work find space? And, you know, I, I think um, the the lesson for me was, you know, at that time was that I, I wanted to work in longer forms, you know, so um, that was a point where I began transitioning into writing other things. And, you know, there are some magazines that are, or not necessarily magazines, but literary magazines that have been really receptive to that kind of uh, mixed genre work. Um, Seneca Review is one of them that's still really um, open to the lyric essay. And, you know, I think, um, you know, it just serves us to maybe think about genre as a mode of emphasis, as opposed to uh, a discrete category of creative production.
1: I actually love that mode of emphasis. I'm writing this this down. Yeah. Discrete production, rather than that. Yeah. And do you find that um, because it is surprising starting as a poet um, with that label, too? Because um, now, now your current position is of non-creative nonfiction.
2: I yeah. Think, right. Yeah, I've had, you know, a long, wobbly road through the academy, um, and I started out, you know, doing degrees, and um, I came out as a literary scholar, actually, first. So I, you know, did a PhD, and um, kind of immediately, as soon as I came out of school, realized that I I didn't want to be a literary scholar. Um, I loved literature, Um maybe at that time too much to be a literary scholar. <laughs> um, and it just didn't really feel like I I had place in that environment. So um, I actually left school, I left teaching for a while and went to work in um, the aer- aerospace industry. Um, I worked, you know, in mar- corporate marketing for an aerospace company for a few years. And th- that's when I really started missing teaching. And I had the good fortune to start um, teaching a night class at um, the, let's see, just losing it, but I was an art school in California. Um,
1: oh, so you were out in California I was out at that in California. point? Yeah, okay. I
2: had left everything, and I was just like, "I'm going to do something different." And you were in LA. I was in right? LA. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Art Center College of Design. Yeah, so I was teaching at Art Center one co- class at night, and I started teaching studio arts, studio arts students who I hadn't had much experience with. So completely maker centered. Completely maker centered. Incredible minds, like just and what stamina do visual artists have? I mean, they could critique each other, take it. I mean, compared to the writing <laughs> workshops that I had been in, it, it was really inspiring. They worked really hard. I also had students with a lot of learning differences, dyslexia and uh, dysgraphia, and um, who had all different kinds of education. Some had a traditional four-year degree. Some had community college degrees. It was really open, very California. Yeah, And... Um, learned so much from them and was really just so inspired. Um, and so it just put me on a track to think about teaching in a different way than I had been taught. Um, so that was great. And then after that, I went and to And you could RISC.
1: see yourself in that, not only see yourself, but you were already present in that. And it was something where you could be alive to it then, it seems like.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was alive to it and I felt like, wow, these are my people. Like, or you know, I want it. these these people who really try and think about how to make their ideas visible to others. Yes. Um, and I have none of those skills visually. Like, I can't do any of that stuff. Um, but in some ways, that was similar to my experience here at Michigan because I couldn't make music. I wasn't a musician, you know. But I, I liked being in a community which required me to try and think differently.
1: And then here, actually, you... Um, not to argue with you, but, but um, you you used your voice as an instrument. So as part of the spoken word and those performance pieces with the
2: music, yeah. right? That yeah. you were an instrument. Yeah, and yeah. I was a terrible performer though. No, no. <laughs> I was epically bad and um, very shy. And you know, maybe you'll hear it when I'm talking. But sometimes I stutter, so it was a combination of trying to hide my stutter. And you know, just not being a natural performer and having really no skills um, except gra- for writing, but you gravitated towards this, and you've kept within it though I did, yeah, I did it was because there you know back there, there was a time when fun was a part of life, <laughs> so it was really fun to <laughs> to play around and try things
1: and don't you think that is part of like reintroducing that into the work is important, too, even though so much of the work, a lot of the work that seems very important now, too, and might be unfolding and being excavated, is serious.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the work now even comes out of that sideways approach to trying to enter a subject. Um, Many of the things I write about are serious subjects, but they're also... um, I, at least I try to make it so that you're invited to come in with me and try to discover something new. And not everything we discover is sad or never. not everything we discover makes you angry. Sometimes it's just complex or nuanced or, you know, a weird shadow hanging over something that makes the light elsewhere clearer. And, you know, that's kind of the understanding that I'm seeking when I'm working.
1: The light elsewhere clearer. Yeah. That's really lovely. Thank you. And it's and that's important in your work, the seeking part of it, the seeking quality.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I have been drawn to nonfiction as a genre, a broad genre, is because it's one of those spaces where a- amateur understanding is valuable, right? And this is something journalists know, right? That, right. You can that, be a generalist as long as you have curiosity. As long as you have curiosity, which I think is really undervalued as a personality trait like curiosity is extremely um extremely important in finding ways of connecting with others and it does a lot on its own it creates a lot of energy on its own
1: yeah it's so connected to empathy
2: isn't it it? it's so connected to empathy but it's even you can even be a little bit um self-focused in being curious, right? right. Like, it, like it allows for all kinds of personalities.
1: Right. Exactly. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily need to lead to empathy, but it would begin it probably. Yeah. And, uh, any let's um let's take a short break and then we'll come back today on living writers wendy s walters is here her book on the table with us multiply multiply divide on the american real and surreal out with sarah Band. and we've got frank behind the glass thanks to frank we'll be right back If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Because today on the program, Wendy S. Walters is here. Her book on the table, Multiply Divide on the American Real and Surreal. And I'm also hoping we could talk about Troy, hmm. um, which I don't have here. Um, but do you have a copy with you, Wendy? Now On the fly, we're <laughs> freeform free radio at its best here. <laughs> Oh, this is what a beautiful book. Um, So if I could describe it to all of you, to hold it in your hands is wonderful. It's almost a perfect square, but not and it shouldn't be. And um, Troy, Michigan, with a family on the cover, um, like I should say, um, a a traditional uh, cisgendered family with two children and a, maybe a woman. You know, why did I decide to describe the cover, Wendy? We don't know. We don't know. I've just gone down a rabbit hole. But um, let's talk about Troy, Michigan and what it was like. Well, you mentioned earlier, you started to mention RISD as after California. How did traveling back east and then how
2: how does it connect to Troy? Well, Um, On the back of the book, one of the things we have is a a map of the city of Troy, which is a suburb of Detroit, for those who don't know, and it's a suburb that I grew up in, spent most of my childhood in, but it's it's laid out like a grid, so it's a very logically planned city, which has these kind of absurdly curving streets (laughs) that are part of the map of the city, and... um, the absurdly curving streets are where the houses are, the the sub the s- subdivisions of houses are. Um, so this book is a little bit about that kind of absurd landscape that's drawn on top of a landscape that's drawn on top of a landscape. And it also is a way of looking at the um, psychology of a place that is designed to be safe. Um, oh, so, yeah. So... Um, you know, this the story in Troy takes place during the 1970s and 1980s. Um, one of the, and when we moved there, I was uh, my family was one of the first Black families to move to the, to that suburb. We had moved from Flint, as I mentioned, and um, you know, a lovely middle class suburb, um, lovely houses. But in the background, there was uh, a lot of challenges to the city of Detroit. Um, the city was kind of underfunded and being defunded, actively being defunded um, by the state. Um, There's a lot of tension going on with with regards to desegregation, which was happening between the cities and the suburbs. And then there were other anxieties that were in the area. In particular, when I was a child, there was a series of murders of children Um and there was a serial killer uh, who was named the Oakland County Child Killer. So as we were coming of age, we were also kind of coming of age with that specter um, in the background. Uh, because How terrifying. It was terrifying, right? Um, because children were being abducted, and they couldn't really solve the case. So, you know, I think there was uh, this weird tension for me between the map of a place, or the idea of a place, and the, you know, reality of um, danger, which is not so different from the time that we're in now. Yes. And in pieces that are in multiply
1: and divide, too, um, that I can think of, which are... So having that, um, that different perception because I think, um, I was able to also read this piece, um, online from your book, uh, Wendy. And it, I think it was about, um, there's a moment where there's the police officer comes in to the classrooms to teach children about strangers or stranger danger, stranger danger. But then how do you know if you know someone enough or it was just so interesting how that was part of the the piece as well
2: yeah there's a w- weird calculus that they were teaching us to not go with strangers but we couldn't figure out who was stranger enough to be you know dangerous and they would do this other weird thing where they would fingerprint us right so they would you'd come in the, the police officer would come in talk to us about stranger danger and then they would fingerprint us and We didn't know why they were fingerprinting us, right? But at that time, that was how they identified remains of children. So it was also this kind of casual way we were set up with
1: worry, right? It was, because then you'd think, I could be next. They think it might be me, so that's why they're taking my prints.
2: Right. And, you know, as a child, you're also like, should it be me or... You know We don't uh, want to wish it on someone else. You either. don't want to wish it on someone else, but you also, you know, don't know who it too many questions, I right.
1: think. Right. Um and was that were these was that one of those moments what also was driving a lot of how Troy, Michigan, the book,
2: became what it is, Wendy? Yeah, so I very much had that in the background and I wanted to think about um a suburban city in pieces. Um, you know, there's, there were also, you know, there was anxiety about class at that time in the city. Mm -hmm. There was anxiety about race that, that time in the city. Um, and then there was this anxiety that wasn't existential, uh, you know, about, you know, people being dangerous in the community without being identified. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was the unsolved nature of that case that was so, uh, challenging um, and th- at the same time, it was also an incredibly safe place to grow up. Um, but, you know, there's ways in which our an environment is constructed. We have driveways, we have houses, we have yards uh, in some certain suburban cities. And those really impact the way people interact as a community. Right, because maybe sidewalks, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. And I think I wanted to look at the architecture and the planning of the city to think about how it might have kept neighbors from finding more meaningful connections with each other. And did you find that idea
1: of it, because obviously lots of things had happened to you by that point in your life, and maybe because you mentioned RISD, was that a part where you started
2: thinking more of like the built landscape or the layers or grids or... Well, when I was a student here, I was also a major at um, in the African-American Studies uh, program. And that program had a really unique bent. It had a landscape architecture city's history as one of the tracks. And that was the aspect I studied. And, of course, the school had such a great school of uh, landscape architecture and planning. Uh, I don't know what it's called now, but it was you know everybody like loved it, and <laughs> it was. I think it's Taubman. Taubman. Ta- okay, yeah, I think it was before Taubman. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, courses there, one was taught by Professor James Chafers, who really had us look at the visual plans of exurban migration and what it looked like to migrate out from the city to the suburbs, and then the exurbs, which were really growing at at that point. Um, And I was really struck by, you know, the importance of maps and topography. And even as I did my graduate work at Cornell, I spent a lot of time in the landscape architecture program, which I think was part of my veering off into nonfiction in part because the sources that I was seeking weren't always in literature. The things I wanted to write about weren't always literary sources. And I found that, you know, the more I learned about the way a geography worked, the more questions I had um, so that's which is so good for when you're discovering and making or or feel like you're on the trail or the path of something yeah yeah and it's one way to find the path right is if you go someplace new you just find the map and see who designed it and you learn a lot about what's there
1: the stories of the place whether they realize it or not
2: really yeah. Yeah. or it... if it's
1: examined or not
2: but... or who was in power at the time that the map was made
1: And how those structures, even if other things need to change and are changing, how the built structure may even have echoes of working against that.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Which reminds me of one of your pieces where you go, you travel up to Maine, I think.
2: Oh, Um, New Hampshire. Or
1: New Hampshire. Yeah. So so not for now, but to to find, could you talk a little bit about this essay? I can
2: try to... Which? Oh, that's uh, "Lonely in America." Oh, it is "Lonely in America."
1: Yeah. It's the first one. <laughs> okay, and this is the lead essay in "In Multiply Divide."
2: Yes. Uh, so, why did
1: it lead off, too, if you don't mind?
2: Like, uh, why did I put it first? Yes, I don't know. I no. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Well, then I won't ask you why I I was, Norway is at the end. I think then. my editor did that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, she did that.
1: So. I had this whole secret story going about how they were. Okay, great. Okay.
2: Um. So, yeah, I actually heard about a burial site on an NPR broadcast, and I was teaching in Providence at RISD at the time. I think I was on sabbatical, and I had no money. Uh, I couldn't afford to go anywhere, so... Um, I had maybe even thrown my back out uh, at that time. So I was just listening to the radio all day, super cold in my house, which couldn't quite heat. And I heard the story of this burial site that had been discovered as people, uh, as they were trying to put in some pipe work in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which was about two hours away. So um, when they opened the ground, they found the remains of People um, and they suspected that it had been African people who had been enslaved in Portsmouth, um, who had been buried in a burial ground. But then that ground at some point had been paved over, and streets were put up, houses were put up. Um, as as that um, as you mentioned earlier, Wendy, as
1: the city or town was growing, things were pushing outward yes. that once had been on
2: potentially the periphery. Yes. Of- yeah, and um, so I was just kind of struck by that, the horror of it, but also um, fascinated with who those people might be. Um, so I took a trip up there because it was a two-hour drive and it was something I could do and was inexpensive at the time and spent the day trying to get information. And what I found out was at that time, the city didn't really have much information about it. So that was a really pivotal moment for me. I didn't start out doing that with an expectation that I would write anything. I was just um, seeking some sort of understanding of where I was and what the world around me was like. And I felt compelled, you know, over the course of two years, I kept visiting that site and asking questions. And I thought, maybe I'll write a poem about it, but it it seemed too complicated to write a poem about. Um, So... Uh, it was one of the first essays that I wrote, you know, I was just thinking about um, what does it mean to be forgotten in that way. And then also the town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, is an incredibly lovely town. So it's, uh, you know, I think they they were dealing with their own history, the uh, history of African people in the town. They had ways of dealing with it. And they really had to create a process for them to reckon with what this history was. and. Um, they built. Eventually, they built a memorial, and now they work with many universities, Harvard and another a number of other regional universities to um, kind of venerate that site and think about it in historical terms. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's been, uh, you know, it's 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 not it's not uncomplicated, um, but it's it's an interesting. It's they, they've really taken it on in an interesting way.
1: And the, the title, too, um, also tells Wendy another layer or, or the frame, um, which I think is, is a brave thing to do in a way, although brave seems like a strange word nowadays somehow, too. I don't know if it's I don't mean it in an overused way, but the way of being vulnerable um The first line is, well, the title Lonely in America. I have never been particularly interested in slavery, perhaps because it is such an obvious fact of my family's history. And then throughout the piece, um, it's almost as if the essay is checking in you as the writer, checking in about what you're feeling on such a, a very direct Level too, and kind of going between like this, examining this loneliness of, and trying to approach a description of what it feels like to feel disconnected. It's it's just really beautiful how you're doing it in this
2: essay. Oh, thank you. I I think that the um, as as the scholars would say, it varies okay. between. Uh, Personal and expository writing, right? That that sounds good. Um, (laughs) But I think uh, it—that's not quite, you know, that kind of scholarly reading of the text is not quite what I think nonfiction writers are trying to do. Which I think is to show the way different kinds of understanding come into the process of knowing something. It's not just one path through information that allows us to understand the world. Sometimes we understand it personally. Sometimes we understand it historically, sociologically, scientifically. And what I love about the genre, the big loopy genre (laughs) of nonfiction, is that it gives you um, a chance to recognize that there are, there's no perfect story. It's always a story that is alive and growing and is about the moment uh, it's being found in. Mm-hmm. And the particular perspective potentially of the, the speaker. Absolutely. And where they are at that moment in their life, like that essay is me in the past, and I, I couldn't write that essay now. Um, and it's a document of the past, but um, all, all of creative work is, you know, is that record of where we were at a time. Uh, do you remember when you writing the author's note that begins multiply divide? I do. Yes. I was sitting in a, a kitchen table in Montreal trying to finish the finish the book in Montreal. Um did you have your teacup and your coaster? I didn't have the coaster. It was we were just at an Airbnb, but um yes, it was December. Uh, I can't remember what year. Um uh, but yeah. 2014 2014. Yeah, so the author's note came from this concern. Do you need it? Cuz I'm Thank like you.
1: hoarding the book over here and no, not it's sharing.
2: Um I had written some of these pieces as fic- as uh non-fictional pieces and then there were some pieces that I had written totally fabricated. Um and I wrote one uh one story that uh in the shape of an essay about the playwright Adrian Adrian Kennedy who I mentioned earlier. Um, where I'm following her all around uh, Cleveland, Ohio, um, which is her hometown, and um, kind of just, you know, trying to get a better understanding of her. And my editor thought that that had really happened. And I thought, oh, it's so clear that it's fiction. And then I realized, you know, nobody's, nobody knows me. (laughs) I need to make this clearer. So, I tried to write a note that would give people an indication, you know, these are these were based on reporting and truth. These were based on stories uh, that I made up. And, uh, you know, I guess in the genre, some people will talk about it as being speculative work. Um, even the fiction that I write is based very much in fact and detail. So I'm writing around what is already there. But, um, you know, in the case of Adrian Kennedy, I really did have to talk to her and say, hey, you know, I want to publish this story where I'm tracking you. And this is the one thing you say in the story. How do you feel about that? Um, and she was very gracious and consented to me using her as a muse. She said she liked the idea. Um, and so that's why that story was able to be included. Um, but that, I, it, you know, that, that shows my nonfiction side in some ways that I, I do feel like, you know, if you're going to use somebody's personality, you have to get their consent. And and there's also like three, I guess,
1: types of pieces that you organize them into. And the the last was the lyric essay.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, lyric essays um, are they're a kind of a for those who don't know it. They're kind of a mix between a poem or a long poem, and a in a traditional essay, a personal essay usually. Sometimes they contain nuggets of historical facts and a speaker who's searching for something. But ideally, a lyric essay also contains a very strong sense of character and voice. Um, And there are, you know, there are great long poems that I think are very much kind of in that tradition. I was just talking today with someone about the poem Isabella or a Pot of Basil by uh, Keats. Uh, Are you familiar with that? I have not read that Um, one, but
1: I would like to now.
2: (laughs) So um, that poem is, you know, the story of a young woman who falls in love with a man and her family decides he's not appropriate for her and they murder him Uh, and they bury his body and she discovers his head and grows a pot of basil and keeps it in her house and refuses to marry. Um, And it's, you know, macabre, and it's dark. It also makes sense. But smart, yeah, yeah. smart and lovely, and it's an old tale that Keats retells um, in a long lyric form, but incredibly inspiring. Um, and I think that, you know, the lyric poem owes a lot to those older poems, the old ballads, The Rape of the Lock, and then you also have um, Ovid's uh, take on Hero and Leander, Um of that classic myth where, um, you know, Hero is, she's dressed in all the garments of the earth. She has all the angels around her. A beautiful young woman who's wearing a skirt of moss and, you know, all of the embellishments are of the organic world. And then Leander, who's a young, beautiful man who is uh, so desired by the gods that he... Um, They're grabbing at him all the time, trying to drown him and bring him into the underworld because they all want to love him as well. And Leander arrives at her door naked and she's adorned and they (laughs) are drawn to each other um, and eventually will pay the price for their union because the gods do not consent to their being together. But um, the lyric essay has that kind of large gesture right like turning something small like a meet cute into an epic tale of um, you know love and sexual exploration and woe, um, but putting it on the scale of the gods yes when do you
1: do you would you want to to read um, from multiply divide
2: or Troy something for yeah I'll, I'll- I'll read a poem or a lyric essay piece. Um, Let's see. Sorry to turn the pages. I'm just looking for the... I love the sound because it's a real book. (laughs) (laughs) It is a real book. Um, I'm going to read from Chicago Radio. Oh, great. uh, Which is a lyric essay I wrote um, that appropriately right out we're on the radio um (laughs) it's perfect (laughs) was uh inspired in part by my affection for the many number of black radio stations that i grew up with um and how i noticed how few there were when i left the detroit area um so and, and many of them were smaller local radio stations so i'll just read a page or two In 2005, more than a million Black people lived in Chicago, Illinois, making it a good place to win friends and stop being a stranger. Other predominantly Black cities like St. Louis, Missouri and Detroit, Michigan, experienced frequent sightings of UFOs. Listening to music underwater affects one's hearing in curious ways. No visible change can be seen in the shape of the eardrum, but many report being able to hear whispers from people they've never met for days after coming to the surface. Investigations into this phenomenon have been labeled crackpot science and hoodoo, though amongst astrologers and criminologists, interest grows. Caller, my name is Mimi and I would like to dedicate a song for my dad. DJ, go ahead. Caller, just start talking. DJ, just start talking. Caller. His name is Earl. The last time I saw him, he was working as an electrician for Delta Airlines at O'Hare in 1995. Dad, you can come home now, and please don't worry too much about the past. This song has no words because I don't want to make any more promises. I still love you.
1: Oh, thanks, Wendy. It just goes on from there. That's, thank you so much. That's, um. It's this is also um, I think the song that we'll go out on is from
2: a band that you you mention here in, in the next page. Yeah, Drexia, James Stinson. Um, yeah, so there was you know in the electronic music scene here in Detroit, there were all kinds of futuristic, uh, aspirational futuristic groups, and uh, that Drexia was one of those groups that um, was really uh, of. Uh, kind of ahead of its time. And unfortunately, Stinson passed away uh, very young. I think he was 32. Um, Suddenly. Suddenly, uh, yeah. But, you know, some really uh, incredible ideas uh, behind the band where um, they were telling stories, or at least part of their work was telling stories about um, Africans who had drowned during the Middle Passage and had supposedly drowned but had actually created a world undersea um so that um was very inspiring to me that is such a that's i wondered and i
1: hadn't thought of this before but hearing you read today wendy um i wondered if that's where the listening to music underwater like if it was a thread because i hadn't known until i looked up the band and listened and saw their story, that that would be part. Is that, when you were building this, that was part of the thread in the lyric essay?
2: Yeah, definitely. And also just thinking about, you know, those ancestors who were underwater, right? So that there's presence and absence and that, um, you know, the songs that we write now might still be heard by those who came before us.
1: Yes, which reminds me of... A little bit of our conversation as we walk towards the station today, thinking about ghosts, even. Yeah, 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 ghosts.
2: And the the presence is around us, mostly untroubled. (laughs) We hope. (laughs) We hope.
1: Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't really have a a question in there, except thinking about that as like another kind of parallel presence and absence in our lives i think that's why i was attempting to connect it wendy because feeling that i feel like i feel like that you as a human being as a maker and then now seeing like how even how you work how you build something the presence and the absence is is always a concern
2: yeah i think that there's um certain things we can verify and certain things we can see. And, you know, we've had a lot of talk about facts in the last few years about what's true and what's not true. Um, people believe and they don't believe, you know, and I think, I think even in this moment we're at a very challenging, uh, we're, we're being asked to believe things that are harder to see. Um, and, you know, you can think about that on the most banal level in terms of climate you know, climate change has been evident for a long time, though it's hard for us as a species to register it because we live for such a short time. And I think that, you know, there's there's discernible experience that we can mark and things we can't mark and even our understanding of how... Um, trauma affects an individual has now scientifically been seen to to go across generations, right? So that's something that a lot of peoples believed, but it couldn't be proven, so it wasn't considered valid. Um, So I am always kind of working with my own convictions, and I try to have convictions when I'm composing a piece, um, even if they're not shared by other people. Um, But I want to make sure that those Convictions are part of what drives the aesthetics or the, the art of what I'm saying. And when you say convictions, I'm with you completely.
1: Um, and is that meaning trusting the making, you as the maker, in your, in your moment, movements, in your decisions, in your path?
2: Yeah, I mean I don't trust everything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Mostly. You know, some I struggle to um to to find that line sometimes, especially, you know, when I'm working on a new project, you know, right now I'm writing this book on white paint and um, you know, there that is a you know, and I I don't I can't say too much about it because it's not done, but you know, as I'm working through it, you know, one of the things is I'm it's coming out of a feeling and it's coming out of a conviction. Um, but there are ways in which my feelings and convictions get challenged. And I am very much trying to make that process visible to the reader, right? That I want people to be able to see that you can believe in something and run up against it and find maybe that there's information that's counterpoint to what you believe. And the the question isn't whether you will find... Contrary information, but rather, how do you make sense of it? How do you deal with it? How do you move in a space that acknowledges multiple truths? Um, Because that's hard, and it's much easier for things to be very simple. Um, But that also requires uh, almost nothing of us morally. Like, we, we have nothing to do if the decisions are all made for us. And I just don't believe that's why we exist, is to have nothing to do and and living
1: is being in multiple truths that are
2: competing and real to those that hold them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean none of our beliefs really I mean you know, I guess there are some people who for whom it's very simple. Um but the 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 history of simplicity I think is um, has been dangerous. That's what I was just thinking. And such, it's so interesting to even think about that word "simple," because usually I would
1: hold it up in high regard, and um, but not in this case, it
2: feels dangerous. Yeah, because it's deceptive. It's deceptive, and we do think that. Um, I think it's very difficult to know how many ways in which we're being. Um, The options that we're given are the appropriate ones, you know, you know, whether it's a red state or a blue state, the framing, so much of the framing of the contemporary discourse has really been set by lobbyists, not been set by people who are living in conditions. So I I just think that um, I'm all for complicating things right now, maybe not forever, but in this moment, I I do think it's worth looking for nuance and
1: and this is connected to your current project
2: definitely with white paint. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely a project about nuance. Um and you know, hopefully I'll finish it and then I'll come have...
1: back. Let's talk. <laughs> I'll come Let's back. Let's talk again. That would be that would be I would love it. Um
2: Wendy, is there um a a poem you'd like to read for us to go out on? Yeah, maybe I'll read a poem from the beginning of Troy Michigan. Um, One of the things that I thought was great about the city that I grew up in uh, was that it's named after this really epic ancient city. But, of course, it's an ancient city that fell, um, which was striking to me once I learned the true story of Troy. Why anyone would pick that name? (laughs) Um, So I will um, read a poem about that. Uh, called Ilion, which is the the old Greek name for the city of Troy. City on a hill, what ambitions you cast centuries forward with your name. Points manifest west, each a little less auspicious than the last one called Troia. Factory-fueled towns fated to fall hard from industry, towns that stole trees to claim wealth and esteem as aspiration, then turn soil to grit, will not die either. You remain too far away from triumph to claim a legacy, but still this trick, naming a new city for a defeated one, is to commit to optimism. Fools navigate the end of an era, seeking direction in a starless sky. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much, T. I've loved talking with you today. Thank Thank you. Thank
1: you. Um, Today on Living Writers, Wendy S. Walters, her books on the table, Troy, Michigan, and Multiply Divide on the American Real and Surreal. Um, I'd like to thank Frank again for engineering. Thanks, Frank. Um, Thank Ashley and the Zell Visiting Writers Series for bringing Wendy here. Um, Thank Wendy. (laughs) And also, um, thank all the listeners and the living writers out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
0: Welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Zachary Linder, along with a full panel of Kobe Siegel, Owen Klein, Daniel Olsen, and Coley Hoving, and we have made it to one day before opening day. All 30 Major League Baseball teams are supposed to begin their season tomorrow, and looking at the weather forecast, it looks like that should actually happen. Doesn't look like any game should get rained out. And so as we are a day away, I want to kind of eventually get into an overview of previewing the whole season. But I want to talk about one topic first that's very polarizing, which is the pitch clock. We've seen it in spring training. It's gone through changes, some of which have been announced, some of which haven't been announced. Then we saw the World Baseball Classic, which was an incredible event didn't have the pitch clock or any of the other rule changes for that matter. So I'm going to eventually get into my thoughts on the pitch clock because I've kind of thought about it for a while, seen how it's evolved. But I'm going to first hear what you guys think, whether you're for it or against it and why. Uh, Could you kind of lay it out for folks that are listening that might not know kind of what it it entails, what the time limits are, uh, maybe just some other basics about what it is. Yeah, so the basic premise is with the pitch clock limiting the amount of time each pitch has to be thrown to speed up the game, with no runners on, it's the pitcher has 15 seconds to deliver the ball, to begin his pitch delivery once the ball is returned to him. With any runners on, it's 20 seconds, and the batter also has to be ready ready and alert to the pitcher in the batter's box with eight seconds to go on the clock. So for both the batter and